0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Well, again, uh, if you came in a bit later and you're new here, my name is Jacob Warren, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. Uh, I was actually supposed to preach the sermon that I'm preaching this morning last week. Uh, So if you're here this past week, uh, you'll know that uh, I was really, really, really sick. And uh, I woke up that morning, I felt something going on, and my wife called it when she heard me say from the bathroom, Uh oh. And so uh, we pulled an audible last Sunday morning and Ryan preached from Jeremiah. It was a great sermon. It was a great uh, time together as the church. But we are continuing our uh, sermon series in the book of Ephesians this morning. And so uh, over the past number of weeks, we've seen through the first two chapters of Ephesians. Paul has been writing to the church at Ephesus, reminding them of the incredible grace of God shown to them and the riches of their inheritance as followers of Jesus. Once they were dead in their trespasses, like chapter 2 said, but God, because of his great love for them, has brought their dead hearts to life in faith in Jesus. Last week, or two weeks ago, at the end of chapter 2, we saw Paul r- revealed the fact that not only have we been reconciled back to God in the good news of the gospel, but we've been reconciled back to each other. The hostility between Jew and Gentile or any other people and anyone else in Jesus is no more, and that frees us to act like the family that we already are in Jesus, as stones being built together into a temple, as members of God's family and citizens, as the kingdom of God. So... If we're going to uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to uh, Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning where Paul's going to take a turn from talking about what God has done about, uh, f- uh, to the Ephesian church and about what that means for them to talking about his specific role in God's mission. What we're going to see this morning is three things in the text, three big themes that will come up on the screens. First is the ministry of Paul, second is the mystery of the gospel, and last, the manifold wisdom of of God. If you haven't already opened up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be in the first 13 verses of chapter 3 together this morning. If you grab one of the black hardback Bibles on the table back there on the way in, and you're new with us this morning, please consider that Bible our gift to you. We love the Bible here, and we want you to have the very words of God, uh, so please consider that our gift to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13, the very words of God to us this morning. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone... What is the plan, the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray again for God's help. Jesus, as we open up your word together as your gathered people, I pray um, that you would be um, present among us powerfully by your spirit, that this very Holy Spirit of God will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, This morning, Spirit, we ask you help us as we ponder these things about your scriptures together, and God, it would produce deep faith in us, hope for those that need it, humility for those that need it this morning, and for all of us to leave out of here um, more fully aware of the mystery now shown, that the manifold wisdom of God has now been displayed in and through your church and that the good news of the gospel advances because of it. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not... Too often that we have spaces in our lives to allow ourselves to ask really, really big questions. We're constantly bombarded with social me- media, and we've got a phone in front of our face. You know, eighty percent of the time. I don't know about you, but I have an iPhone. It gives me that weekly screen report, that that weekly reminder of my uh, my uh, participation in idolatry. The thing that pops up, it's like, oh, this is how much stuff you watched this week, how much time you wasted on whatever social media or whatever. But we really lack a lot of room in our life to consider the big questions. Uh, Maybe you've been out alone on a hiking trip or had just space away and allowed yourself to ask one of the big questions like, well, what am I here for? How did we all get here? Maybe even venture to ask, like, what is the purpose of life? Well, here in this passage, Paul states that God, what God has done in the gospel was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That means that God, the creator of all things, has an eternal purpose in mind from the beginning of everything. Before the creation of the universe, before the creation of our world, before the creation of man, God had a plan. God himself has eternally had a mission that he was seeing played out through all of time and history. But Paul also says that the plan of God was a mystery. And we often think of mysteries like this. You think of mystery like it's depicted in a, in a novel or in a movie. Uh, just think of the last mystery thriller that you maybe watched about a, a scary story of someone who murdered someone else and it, the, the, the plot's going to be revealed at the end. Something dark, something secret, something incomprehensible or even inexplicable. But the word mystery here in the way that Paul is using it means something very different. This usage of the word mystery would have been something more akin to the definition from one theologian that come up on the screen like this. It's a truth previously hidden, from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. There's nothing dark about this. There's nothing sinister about this mystery. This is the plan of God now revealed. So Paul, through this passage, tells us that the eternal purposes of God have been realized through the revelation of this mystery, and it's his special privilege to disclose the plan of God to all people, to share to both Jew and Gentile alike. This is precisely how Paul begins the Ephesians chapter three by telling the Ephesians three things about his unique ministry. First that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus; second, that he was apostle to the Gentiles, and that he was appointed a minister of the gospel. So what does Paul mean at the beginning of chapter three here saying that he was a prisoner of Christ? I think he has a few things in mind. First of all, Um, you have to think about the context of what uh, Paul's actual circumstances were. Where was Paul writing this letter from? He was in a Roman jail cell. He was a literal prisoner at this time of the Romans. But he doesn't say, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Romans. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. This is a statement of joyful rebellion to say that even though he sat in a Roman jail cell, they had no right over him. He was ruled and directed by one king, and his name was not Caesar. His name was Jesus. Paul elsewhere was happy to be called a slave of Christ. And us in our Western context, in our culture, we're like, whoa, 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 Paul. You used the S word there. Like, that's crazy. You don't say things like that. That's wild. No, say we in our individualistic Western world, but Paul is happy to be possessed by Christ, even if it means writing from being in prison in a dark, stinky jail cell in Rome. See, by calling himself a prisoner of Christ, in what he also means in verse 13, that he not lose heart over what he is suffering from them, Paul understands that his allegiance to Christ, his allegiance to Jesus, not only means a loss of his own autonomy, but it means the real chance and reality of suffering on behalf of others. This also makes us shake in our boots a little bit, doesn't it? Being willing to be called a slave? No thanks. But now having to suffer on behalf of others? See, there's never been a point in human history where we have enjoyed as much comfort as we now do in our day and age, and specifically in our country as well. What do we know of willfully giving up our rights, privileges, and comfort so that others could enjoy it? Maybe some of us do. Maybe some of us know that very well, but some of us know it very little. Paul then serves as an example for us of what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means giving up your own rights to be owned by Jesus, and a part of that means being called to love and serve others in specific ways that means your own suffering. Now then, what was Paul's specific calling? See, the second thing we see about what Paul's ministry is that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And this is actually how he began his letter all the way back in chapter one. One of the first things he says that he was a, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's Ephesians 1, 1. Now, before we go a bit further, might need to explain what an apostle is. I'm not talking about that uh, poor man's American Eagle store in the, the mall, Eropostal, right? No, not that. Apostle, however you want to say it. If you're in the South, everybody pronounces stuff different anyways. Right? We don't know how to pronounce Eropostal. <laughs> See, now I'm not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about an apostolic office that has now ceased with the closing of the New Testament canon. What we mean by that is the New Testament scriptures. See, an apostle, according to the New Testament, were men who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ Jesus. Apostles were commissioned to take the gospel to the nations, and they were used to pen the New Testament scriptures. That office is now ceased. There's no more big A apostles out there in the world, because you guessed it, they're all dead. Okay, those dudes died. Uh, They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They're now all dead. And Paul mentions that he's kind of an odd duck in this grouping. And elsewhere, he says that he was one, like, he was born out of time as the last one that Jesus appeared to. And he calls himself the, not just the least of all the apostles, but here he calls himself unworthy of the privileges given to him by saying that not only he was the, the least of all the apostles but here he says he's the least of all the saints least of all the saints paul demonstrates an incredible humility here doesn't he paul has been given the privilege of not only witnessing the the risen jesus face to face he's been directly commissioned by jesus and paul got to write the bible y'all he got to write the very words of scripture and yet he sees himself as the lowest of the low, the lowest of the low, not just of the apostles, but of everyone in Jesus' church, of all the saints. What this should do for us is to serve to show us that any mark or any calling that God might place on our lives should produce humility in us. See, the result of any real call on our lives, however great, should reveal to us just how unworthy we are to deserve it. See, in this lies a great secret of contentment. We should realize that in confessing our own weaknesses and our own inability to rise to the calling that God make place in our lives, we can then boast in the strength of Christ alone. We can boast in the strength that only God can provide, and he can accomplish his purposes through us. Just a quick application here. See, we shouldn't expect to have the same level of kind of a Damascus Road experience we'll see in a a moment of Paul's missional calling that Paul experienced. That was incredibly rare, but we should all acknowledge that if we are followers of Jesus, we've all been called by God to make disciples, wherever we are, with whomever God's called us to. So if you're married, you're called to your spouse. He said, I do on the altar. She's the one. He's the one. You're called to that person. If you've got kids, you're called to disciple those kids. If you've got a job, you're called to make disciples where you work. In the church, we all bear a responsibility to seek the growth of each other here. In our city, in our neighborhoods, in our gyms, and the places you hang out are all opportunities for gospel advancement. Some of you may even feel missionally called to one specific group within the city, and that's great. We'd love to know that we hold a time of prayer at the back of the room with elders. If you feel particularly called in one of these ways, we would love to help you discern that direction, help partner with you in prayer as you take the gospel to the nations. Then we turn to the third thing we're told by Paul about his ministry, that he was made a minister of the gospel. We're told that Paul was made a minister of the gospel by God's grace and by the working of God's power. So remember, if you will, uh, maybe you've been uh, to Sunday school, back in the day, felt bored, story of Paul, many of us may remember it, but I ask you to do that because Paul tells his readers to do exactly that. He says, remember my story. Look at me at verse 2 again. Verse 2, he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. What Paul's referencing here is the story of his own calling. We're told in the early chapters of Acts that Paul was one of the fiercest uh, people against the early Christians. He stood as one of the harshest enemies of the church, going so far as to see Christians killed and approving of their murders as well. We're told this in Acts chapter 9. This will come up on the screens for us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, Now as he went on his way, this is Paul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Verse 4, and following down on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Later on in the story, we're told that Paul was called by the working of God's power. God would send a man named Ananias to Paul that was sent by God in a vision to go to Paul, and just like the scales would eventually fall off of Paul's eyes, allowing him to see the light of day again, he would see again his calling that Jesus had placed on his life because God had told Ananias this in the vision that he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Wonderful calling there, right? Called to suffer for the sake of Christ. See, the story of Paul, once an enemy of Christ, was now a chosen instrument to preach the gospel through is a testimony of the incredible, miraculous, radical grace of God. The grace of God is scandalous because none of us deserve it. And when we see examples of guys like Paul, like this dude was murdering Christians, now turned to be God's chosen instrument to advance the gospel, that's scandalous. That's a little crazy. The, thing, the, the fact that God chooses to work through most mightily through those whom might, we might assume are too far gone For God to redeem is scandalous. So let's pause here for a moment and ask the question, who do you write off as too far gone? Now, I know that there is a lot of crazy out there in the world. There's a lot of jacked up ways that people are espousing and talking about all the time. Our culture is messed up. But who do you write off as too far gone for God to use? We all do it. What if, what if the next church planning movement is led by someone who formerly was a prominent leader, or maybe is right now a leader in the LGBTQ movement? What if right now, the next Billy Graham-type evangelist is currently homeless and on drugs? See, I think we're meant to see with gospel clarity that God delights to use things that are weak to shame the strong. Paul is a prime example and I need to rid myself, and you need to rid yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus, of the sinful pride. We need to be like Ananias, going to the frightening pause of this world, world with the good news of the gospel on our lips. Because when we go with the good news of the gospel on our lips to our workplaces, to the places that God has called us around this city, God will call scales to fall off eyes. He will call Paul's out of the darkness to serve him and do his will, if only we would go. Now we move from Paul's words about his mystery to the next theme of the passage, the mystery of the gospel. And speaking of this mystery of the gospel, what exactly is it? So let's look back again at verses 1 through 6 again. Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to be my revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery, according to Paul, is that the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promises of Christ. That word Christ meaning Messiah. If you read that anywhere in the New Testament and you see Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. His name was not Jesus Christ. That means Messiah. It means he's the promised one, the one who's promised to come that's going to make all things new. That from Genesis to Malachi and the Old Testament, God had promised a Savior that would bring salvation and restoration of the covenant between God and his people. And what's mysterious about the gospel was not that a Messiah was coming, was, but rather that, that all, through all their Bible study and all their pro, uh, hope in the promises of God, God's people Uh, remain in the dark about the secret that God's plan would be to graft in the Gentiles, the non-Jews, into the promises of God. Paul says in verse 8 that it's surprising news that he preached to the Gentiles was that they had a share in the claim of the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what's Paul talking about? What's the unsearchable riches of Christ? And I'd ask you just read the first half of Ephesians again. Like look back at Ephesians chapter 1. We're talking about Um, what he says in chapter one, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus. In Jesus, you get election, being chosen by God. In Jesus, you get adoption, being brought into God's family. In Jesus, you get redemption, being bought back by God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. In Jesus, you get reconciliation that's made possible between you and God horizontal reconciliation and I mean a a vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation with you and your neighbor there is no end to the riches to be had in Christ well Paul's saying the mystery again he didn't just preach this to Gentiles he was preaching this to Jews to to say in verse 9 to bring the light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things This just means that he also preached to the Jews about the amazing inclusion of the Gentiles in the plan of God. This brings us to the third major theme in the passage that answers the question, what is the eternal purpose of God that has now been revealed? According to Paul, the eternal purposes of God have culminated into something so glorious that it displays the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God, even to the angelic beings. This better be a spectacular thing. And the manifold wisdom of God is shown to the world through, drumroll the church. The church. It might sound a little anticlimactic, right? Because I don't know, the last time you looked at a church, most of the time churches aren't all that impressive, right? Think about the early church, about this ragtag group of Gentiles and Jews just trying to get along with each other, trying to figure out how to not step on each other's toes all the time figuring out, trying to, trying to figure out how not to sin against one another. If you fast forward to the church to today, we're very much the same. We're a group of, of ragtag believers trying to just get along with one another, trying to love each other and serve each other and not offend one another because we come from everywhere and you know, we're also going all nowhere at the same time. We're, we're, we're trying to figure this thing out because the church is made up of sinners bumping into each other all the time. So how in the world does the church display the wisdom of God? What does Paul see and the watching angels see that's difficult for us to see about the church? Look again at verse 11. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, the church... It's amazing not because of all of its parts. The church is amazing primarily because it is God's redeemed covenant community that he, Jesus, has bought with his blood. And what we get in that, we get boldness. We get access with confidence before a holy God. And this, this is incredible. Hebrews 10 tells us a bit more about this incredible privilege we have in Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 says it like this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there you see it, boldness, absolute boldness. You don't enter into the presence of a holy, righteous God unless you want to get obliterated or you are holy and righteous as well. So what's that boldness that we have? How do we get it? Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Again, the reason why we can come before a holy God and have boldness and confidence is the crucifixion of Jesus for our sin and our place. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, there's that access we have to God. Let us draw near like a son to a father. Draw near with a true heart a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. This is the type of boldness and access that we can have as followers of Jesus. See, most of the life of a follower of Jesus is just constantly needing to be reminded of the boldness and access that we have before God because we are so prone to forget it. We're so prone to think that we just don't deserve the grace of God. And so we don't go to God. But through the gospel, through what Jesus has done, we are welcomed in. Again, like sons and daughters to come before God like his children, because we actually are. We actually have been adopted. We actually have been brought in. We actually have been brought together. We actually do have brothers and sisters beside us. We need these truths preached to us day in and day out because we have gospel amnesia all the time, every day. Because of what Jesus has done, we have this boldness before the God of the universe. Once we were separated by sin, now we're the ones that boldly enter into the throne room. All because of what Jesus has done. It's not just enough that God would forgive us, just grant us forgiveness. God is pleased to go so far as to partner with this new humanity, this new covenant people, to be the means by which the gospel is advanced around the world. John Stott beautifully describes it like this. So then, as the gospel spreads throughout the world, this new diverse Christian community develops. It is as if the great drama is being enacted. History is the theater. The world is the stage. The church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. We are to think of them as spectators of the drama of salvation. Thus, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. Don't you love that? The history of the church becomes a graduate school for angels. So now the church of God makes known the gospel of God and thus reveals the eternal purposes of God throughout all of human history because it was the plan of God to redeem all people to himself through the death of Jesus and the establishment of the church. So then for the rest of our time, for the next few minutes, we need to discuss the centrality of the church and the mission of God. And sealing again from our friend John Stott, through this passage we can see that a major lesson of this passage is the biblical centrality of the church. That according to this passage, we learn three things about the church. That the church is central to history, the church is central to the gospel, and the church is central to Christian living. I gotta confess, Early on in my walk as a follower of Jesus, I grew up in the church. You know, I was one of those little church kids running around, you know, diving up under pews, folding the, the, the giving envelopes in the airplanes and trying not to get a spanking. You know, I was there. If the doors were open, I was there. My grandma played the piano. Uh, my mom was like the choir director. Uh, we had like seven people in the choir, you know, a very small like church uh, out, out in the middle of nowhere. And I was there. That was my concept of being in the church, and you went to church because you're supposed to go to church, was just kind of cultural norm, but that's just not the norm anymore. It's becoming less and less of a thing, and a lot of the arguments for people of why you go to church, it, it was like to see grandma, you know, like to make sure that she like fed you afterwards because she's the one who made chicken pastry. And you couldn't go over to her house, and she'd say, where were you if you weren't at church, right? You're, you're trying to avoid scorn, but now grandma's gone, and a lot of, even in the South, it's just not, it's becoming less and less of a cultural norm. See, instead of that being the reason, or those being reasons, none of those are bad reasons to go to church and be a part of a church, but instead of that, what should inform our attendance of membership of the local church should be because uh, we are convinced that the church is central to the mission of God. As Christians, we have a unique view of history. And that we understand that all of history not, is not just a big list of facts that we need to memorize or something you're going to get taught in school. But history, as followers of Jesus and as Christians, is primarily a story. We understand all of history as a story. And according to the Bible, at the, at the center of that story is the cross of Jesus. It's the sacrificial death of Jesus, God's son on the cross for sins. And that would be what all of history was culminating towards. And after the fact of the cross of Jesus is what everything was building from. And this brings us to the second thing that we learned about the church. The church is not just central to history, but central to the gospel. See, when you and I think of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, most of the time we think about it in terms of our, our vertical reconciliation back to God. But we must not forget That because of what the gospel accomplished, we have horizontal reconciliation with each other made possible by the blood of Jesus. See, the church is established by the gospel, and the church is central to the message of the gospel, that the good news uh, with peace with God, but also peace with each other. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the good news that you can get in on. Not just sins forgiven, but a family to be welcomed into, a heavenly Father to love and accept you, we just sang about it in song. And the best part is that it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from. There's always more room at the table of Jesus. The invitation to come is always extended. And all you need to do is come to Jesus and believe in faith. Also, think about this for a moment. If the church is God's covenant community of those who are made into one new family and humanity itself, what do we do with all of the diversity within that family? like the young, the old, the many ethnicities, the cultures, the languages, the backgrounds. (laughs) There's a lot of things that are different about us. See, this passage answers us with this, that the wisdom of God is multifaceted. And it's not a stretch to say that just as it is with the wisdom of the church as being multifaceted and manifold, God's church is multifaceted as well. It is the church of Christ that Paul has labored to tell us is multi ethnic and multicultural, that no other human institution resembles it at all. The church is ever expanding and the church is never static. The church is never to be satisfied with the status quo. Jesus gave us the great commission to go and make disciples of all tribes, all tongues, all nations. Remember, the church is always advancing. Remember what Jesus said about the church? that the gates of hell won't what? They won't stand against it. That means the church is always playing offense. We're never playing defense. We're always advancing. That's why our church mission statement is to be a church that loves God, loves people, and advances the gospel. Because we believe that the church is the primary vehicle that God uses to do this gospel advancement. It is Jesus' church. So as the universal church of God is manifested in local churches all over the world, each local church is charged with putting the gospel on display within them, both in their celebration of being reconciled to God and to each other. And this brings us to the last thing we're to learn about the church. The church is central to Christian living. The church is central to history and the gospel. How could it not be central in the lives of all Christians? How could we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How can we push meaningful involvement with a church to the margins of our lives? See, we should all feel the good and right weight of being responsible church members, active in a local expression of the church. And the way that we express this in our church is through a partnership covenant. If you become a member here at our church, that's what we call partnership here. If you become a partner, you're going to sign a document that says you're going to do five things. Living a life of holiness of service, generosity, community, and mission. And there's just like base base level, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus type stuff. My holiness doesn't mean that like, hey, I'm never gonna sin again. Far from it. Your sin's always in front of you. My sin's always in front of you. It just means that you're taking sin seriously in your life. You're known and being known by others. A life of service is just a commitment to transition from a spectator mentality to a participatory one, that you're a necessary part of what God wants to do in and through our church. So we need you on the team. No bench setters in the the church of Christ. A life of generosity is saying that we ask every person of any means who feels called to be part of Veritas to be generous and sacrificial giver. We challenge members to give from the abundance that God has provided because we believe that God is not going to call us to something that he's not going to equip us for. He's not. See, the giving of our finances is one of our way to generously respond to the greatness of Jesus. We live a life of community with one another. Following Jesus much more than attending Sunday gatherings, as primary as they should be in the life of a follower of Jesus, but they're not just it. We We serve alongside each other. We we, uh, attend community groups outside of the Sunday morning gathering, and we are called to be the body of Christ, to share our gifts, bear one of those burdens, and serve each other in love as we live life together. Finally, we live lives of missions. Partners commit to using their many gifts and unique personalities to build meaningful relationships with those who do not know Christ through a genuine expression of love, helping others come to faith. So finally, we must ask ourselves the question, if we are a follower of Jesus— Do we love the church? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you meaningfully involved with this body of believers? Are we joyfully rejoicing in our ability to approach God with boldness and access? Like Paul prayed at the end of this passage in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul, far from begrudging his role of suffering imprisonment on behalf of the Ephesian church, he comforts them from worrying about him. In what he's enduring, and even goes f- so far to say that it is for their glory, because Paul stands as their champion, willing to be in prison on their behalf, because it means their inclusion in the church of God. He sees his suffering as freeing them to enjoy the privilege of being the church that they have already been made in Christ, and I pray that this morning we receive this as our privilege as well, that as Jesus has made us a church, we get to act like the family, that God has already made us. Let's pray together, church. Jesus, we do pray this, um, that you would help us to see that we have been made into a family. God, I pray that, the, that those of us that are here, that are maybe feel like on the fringes of that family, um, that there is desire to know and be known. God, I pray that they would know um, that you, God, want to grant those desires of their hearts, uh, to be welcomed into your family, Lord Jesus. For those that feel far away um, because they've been um, holdouts of faith, um, just can't get past one thing or another, God, I pray that you would grant um, special faith this morning to believe uh, for those that are far from you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would uh, bring dead hearts back to life. God, I pray that uh, in and through the gospel uh, being proclaimed this morning, that those with weak faith would feel um, bound up and comforted. Uh, God, that need our pride checked, uh, that we would be brought low, Jesus, as you are lowly. Uh, Jesus, I pray that as Paul prayed um, and uh, said that he was the least of all the saints, that we would consider ourselves as low uh, so that we may lift high the name of Jesus, Uh, that we lift up one another in prayer and serve one another well as a church body. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.